The Start. On Demand. demand. Mackling and McNabb with you. It is the start on a Wednesday morning. And, Loren, I can confirm that Dale Howarchuk's banner, which normally resides in the rafters, a place of honour at Bell MTS Place, is, in fact, still standing on display at True North Square. So if you'd like to go there and pay your respects to the now late Dale Howarchuk, you can do do so in person today. Global News Morning reporter Abigail Turner is there, and she's going to join us later in the show to let us know what she's seen and what she's hearing, of course, from Winnipeggers. But the Winnipegger I want to hear from right now, Greg, is you. Well, I guess there's only one way to do this. August 13th, 1981. That was the day many of us met Dale Howarchuk for the very first time. Hundreds of Winnipeg Jets fans gathered at the northeast corner of Portage and Maine to reenact history, all in an effort to, well, will better things for a team which had just concluded one of the worst seasons in the history of the National Hockey League. The prize for the 1980-81 Winnipeg Jets and their nine-win season the first overall draft choice in the NHL entry draft, who ended up being Dale Howarchuk. It had been just over nine years earlier that Bobby Hull became the first million-dollar hockey player by signing with the then World Hockey Association's Winnipeg Jets, that very same location. Jets general manager John Ferguson watched as the 18-year-old Howarchuk climbed out of the back of a Brinks truck with a young woman on each arm and the hockey fans of Winnipeg at his feet. Howard Chuck, barely legally old enough to sign his name, did so with a smile, if not a little bit of consternation on his face. Howard Chuck would go on to play nine seasons for the Jets. He led them to their first ever playoff appearance in his first season. He was awarded the Calder Trophy as the league's outstanding rookie. He went on to become one of the best players to ever play the game without winning a Stanley Cup. You can't talk about Dale Howarchuk's hockey career without recalling the deciding game of the Canada Cup in 1987. Everyone remembers Lemieux and Gretzky on the break to score the game-winning goal, but it was Howarchuk who took the face-off in his own end on that play, and he was in fact ultimately awarded player of the game. You can look up all his stats and what he did with the Buffalo Sabres, St. Louis Blues, and the Philadelphia Flyers online in the record books or at the Hockey Hall of Fame. What you won't find in the record books is the impact Dale Howarchuk had on his fans and on this city. My brother Kevin and I made the trip to Portage and Maine by bus that hot August day. Barely 12 years old, I couldn't wait to welcome Ducky to his new team, to his new city. I recall meeting members of the New York Islanders fan club who happened to be in town for some odd reason. The memories of that day are extremely vivid. They handed out pennants with a caricature of Howard Chuck on them, sponsored by 7-Up, if I remember correctly. It would be the first of many interactions with one Dale Howard Chuck. Howard Chuck immediately became the face of the Winnipeg Jets. He was well-spoken, if not humble and soft-spoken. He was one of those players who just seemed to fit in Winnipeg. Rumors were he had a swimming pool on his backyard. 
with a Jets logo emblazoned on the bottom. If not for Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton Oilers, Dale Howarchuk would have likely hoisted the Stanley Cup for all of Manitoba to celebrate, maybe even at Portage in Maine. There may be one other player who stood in the way of the Jets and Howarchuk's imagined destiny, Calgary Flame defenseman Jamie McCowan, sometimes referred to as the most hated man in Winnipeg. April 13, 1985, at the Saddle Dome in Calgary, Howarchuk skated towards the Flames' blue line, and in an effort to get past McCowan, Howarchuk left his feet and the Calgary defenseman cross-checked Dale right across his ribs. Howarchuk's season was done. The Jets managed to dispatch the Flames in that opening round series, but would eventually go on to lose four straight games to the eventual Stanley Cup champion, mm-hmm, you know it, the Edmonton Oilers. Howarchuk led the Jets to a magical 96-point season that year. His 50th goal of that campaign was one of the most spectacular in Jets history. The Jets didn't lose any of their last 13 games of that season on their way to a fourth-place overall standing. Dave Ellett told me a couple of years ago that that was, in fact, the best-ever Winnipeg Jets team. The day Dale Howarchuk got traded to the Buffalo Sabres, he was doing something very Winnipeg. He was having a garage sale at his house. My dad brought me a special gift that day, June 16, 1990. Howard Chuck was quite the golfer. I am not. But fortunately for me, Ducky golfed from the proper side of the ball. We were both lefties. That putter ultimately ended up in somebody else's golf bag. And if you have it, please return it. There were hundreds of memories contained within those nine years of Howard Chuck's time in Winnipeg. Even though he went on to play elsewhere, he was always a Jet. He married a Winnipegger. He had a cottage in Manitoba for years. He hosted golf tournaments. He, he became one of us. When the Jets drafted Mark Shifley, urban legend has it, Howard Chuck gave the new Jets the inside scoop on their future star. Howard Chuck was Shifley's head coach in Barrie, of the Ontario Hockey League. I was fortunate enough to visit with Dale Howarchuk several times over the years, always by phone, right here on CJOB. Regardless of the circumstance, it was one of those pinch-me moments in my life. What on earth did I do to deserve to be interviewing one of my hockey idols? What an honour, just as it was an honour to have Dale Howarchuk counted as one of us. Howard Chuck Strong will, I hope, long be part of the Winnipeg lexicon. Never, ever could I have imagined the day I got the news that Dale Howarchuk had died. Well, that day came today. It was just a few short months ago, April 22nd, we were celebrating Ducky's last cancer treatment. He was open and honest about what he'd been through. He even got a little political and shared some very personal views with us right here on the start. My father-in-law often teases me by saying he wants me to weep at his funeral. I think it's his way of expressing his hope that we are as close as it seems that we are. Today I wept as I received the news that Dale Howarchuk had lost his battle with cancer. I guess that means he was as important to me as I thought he was. On Saturday, my boys received in the mail 
Howard Chuck Strong t-shirts. Something I'll know they will wear with pride as the legend of Dale Howard Chuck lives strong in my house. I know I'm not alone in my feelings today. I know many of you have incredible memories of your relationship with Dale Howard Chuck. My condolences to all who felt a connection with Dale. To those who shared him with us, all I can say is thank you. Loren McNabb, along with Jeffrey Forche, Jeff Braun, and Kelly Moore, having a coffee, talking chocolate, Loren. Well, why not? You know, uh, we're talking about a lot of uh, very heartfelt things this morning, but we also want to try to put a smile on folks' faces because we're we're dealing with so much right now, and, and the death of Dale Howardchuck has, has been a real big blow to so many in this community, and we're going to have a lot more with that after 7 and again at 8.45. But right now, another story you spotted this morning, Greg, uh, put a smile on my face because in a town in Switzerland, it rained snow like coca leaves it basically rained chocolate as far as i'm concerned uh it's a factory malfunction that caused snow like coca to or cocoa i guess depending on how i'm saying it to rain down on the switzerland town it's from i think lint is the chocolate factory there and so lint chocolate was basically falling on the streets and so we wanted to ask the question this morning if it were to rain anything what would you like it to be? And I'm going to say you can't answer money. That's too easy. So mm. get that out of your minds. Who's groaning right now? Forget it. And uh, keep it clean, I think, was another part of Greg's discussion. Greg. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, very much so, as <laughs> always. But with this group, you have to make that qualifier just in case. Jeff Braun, why don't we start with you? Well, the cleanliness is the problem because of all the fun things that might fall from the sky, someone's going to have to clean up the mess at some point, right? So... Like, I like iced tea, but boy, would that be like the stickiest rain imaginable, so that's no good. Uh, I think I'm going to go with French fries. Oh. How handy would it be to just put out a, a, your bowl out on the lawn and collect a bunch of French fries for supper every day, you know? That'd be awesome. Also, I'm very hungry right now. <laughs> would there be any particular kind of French fry that you would choose oh. for it to be raining, Jeff? They're all good. All, all French fries are good. It's like uh, pizza, right? Even the bad stuff's good. But I, I think... If we're being honest with ourselves, you got to give it to McDonald's on the French fry front. There's just something about, I don't know, all the extra fat and salt they put in those things that keeps me coming back for more. Yeah, I think a lot of us were probably imagining you might say McDonald's. Kelly Moore, how about you? Uh, we could use a little bit more rain. What, what would you hope would be coming down from the sky if you could choose? Well, I'll tell you two things. Uh, one is somewhat on a serious note. The other one is on a fun note. But, uh, man, if there was a vaccine for COVID-19, that would be just great if that kind of fell from the sky. But uh, on, a, on a lighter note, um, right now we are going through a bag of Costco Maui onion potato chips. So I would uh, I would be happy if the sky uh, if if they were falling from the sky and I'd just be there to collect them in a great big old bowl. <laughs> Food <laughs> so far is the theme of the day. Forte, you going to keep it coming? Well, I was going to say beer, but 
Why but? Why, why well, are you qualifying well, that? Well, Braun's, Braun's whole thing on having to clean it up. Uh, you know, at, at, least, at least potatoes. At least potatoes. Bad for the rivers. <laughs> and, my liver, and my liver. <laughs> well, yeah, well, fine. I'll, I'll say beer. There you go. That's, that's the right answer. If that's the one that you want to share, that's the right answer. McNabb, wouldn't it be chocolate? Uh, I think chocolate or chips is the way to go if it's going to be food. Part of me wants to say Roombas, so it would just be a nonstop vacuuming going on, so it could be a little cleaner of a place, particularly in my home. But <laughs> what I guess if you the get hit by one of those? <laughs> yeah. just walk, you're walking outside, and Kill all of a sudden, millions. boom! <laughs> I was more just thinking about how it's so dusty out there. Maybe it could clean up the deck, and maybe one, maybe if it flooded into the wi- window well, I'd have a cleaner basement. I don't know. I'm trying to be practical, but no, I think, I think you'd have to go some sort of. To Jeff's point, I know it's kind of boring to stay clean, but it has to be some food that's not going to immediately be gross five minutes later. You know, like it'll be like fries can stick around for a bit, chips can, chocolate can. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, this is a very real conversation that's taken place in my home because of the movie. Uh, is it raining with a chance of meatballs or cloudy sunny. with a chance of? Isn't it sunny with a chance of meatballs? Cloudy, cloudy. I don't know. It's a movie. Yes. So it's a full <laughs> movie where it rained all sorts of foods, and so after you watch that, kids have all sorts of conversations about what you'd like to rain. Meatballs and spaghetti is not one of them. No, I, the, the the damage done by the Roombas, I can't get that out of my head. <laughs> The MPI wouldn't like that very much. That's, maybe that's why Pat just texted to say, I would like it to rain common sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> would we be able to see that, though? That's the only problem. Would people know to stick out their hands and gather some? Because most people that, that don't have any common sense don't realize they don't have common sense and uh, it's a simple answer for me it's a local answer for me a low pressure system starting uh, in Gimli and moving all over the province containing uh, Crown Royal would be the uh, would be the answer for me (laughs) good one so between that we just need a little we need a Crown Royal with a side of coke yeah sure maybe North K could get the coke and you know, you oh. could just drive with your arm out the window. That's oh, I like that. Julian. On the passenger side, to be clear. Yes, a little Julian in the trailer park, boys. <laughs> Melissa saying puppies. Oh, don't do that to the puppies, but I understand the sentiment. <laughs> Two, zero, Go ahead, Loren. <laughs> they can safely fall. They're going to be in parachutes. Yeah, I mean, this, that's anything what I was thinking. Can, parachutes <laughs> now. Anything can happen in this scenario, I okay? Like <laughs> no one's getting hurt by Roombas. The potatoes won't be dirty, and the puppies will fall <laughs> safely from the sky, okay? Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb with you on this Wednesday morning. It's a little bit solemn around here. Of course, Winnipeg lost one of its, well, shall we say one of its own yesterday, Loren McNabb. He wasn't born here and he spent less than a decade as a citizen of Winnipeg. But Dale Howarchuk is being remembered today as as a true blue Winnipegger. And I think we're pretty stingy with that title. We don't hand that out to just anyone because it's not about even just living here. You can live here and and actually not really be a real Winnipegger, right? And he really embraced the community. Uh, it's humble, uh, his humble tone, his work ethic. Uh, I think his love, you mentioned uh, in 637, you know, having a cottage in the area and still coming and going from here so many times. And so he was Winnipeg. He was the Winnipeg Jet. 
Ted Irvin had the uh, honor, shall I say, the distinction of being a color analyst here on 680 CJOB for several years uh, for the Winnipeg Jets 1.0 broadcasts. He is a true Winnipegger, grew up uh, in my old neighborhood. Ted Irvin, good morning, sir. Good morning. I know these are uh, never easy to do, these remembrances of individuals who touched our lives and that are gone far too young. But, Ted, just in a, in a basic question, uh, what were your impressions of Dale Howard, Chuck, over the years? Well, uh, C. Joe B. was the one that gave me the most insight uh, to Dale by allowing me to do the radio show. And uh, you're talking about an 18-year-old kid. I, I guess from my – I'm listening to your show, and it's just wonderful, as you guys always are. What can I bring to this broadcast is it's not stats. Everybody knows them. I never played with the man. But I can relate as a 13-year player and playing with some of the greats. I often wonder with the guys like Dale, what makes them so different? I hear all the accolades. But a guy like Dale falls in the category of Hall of Famer and young guy, not that big, but to be that kind of leader at 18 years old, to have that kind of effect on the, com- on the whole community, what's different about guys like Dale? He had an extra ingredient that not everybody has. Some of us make it to the NHL, but there's only so many Dale Howard Chucks. And I'll review through the whole show of what I watch, and I can relate to his career, to the Edmonton series, the Gretzky comparison, not beating those guys. What would that do to a guy like Dale? All it made him be is a better, better player, and he dragged his teammates along with him. But that Canada Cup stuff, guys, I'll touch on some stuff that I just love about this young guy that most people wouldn't know. I could see it on the ice of where he fits in as a human being, as a player, unselfish, uh, almost an unknown type of guy. And, uh, yeah, talent, but I respect so much what other gifts he has and how he's affected so many teammates, the community, and the game of hockey. Ted, you mentioned the Canada Cup in 87, and that game-winning goal in Game 3 of that series, everybody knows Lemieux and and Gretzky. Didn't that play, to a certain extent, exemplify Dale Howarchuk's place in the hockey world? There he was on a line on the ice with Lemieux and Gretzky, and he's chosen to take the face off. Watch the replay. I've watched it a thousand times, because I know that Gretzky was out of gas, and Keenan had to put other guys out there, the Sutters, the Howard Chucks, the props, and everything else. But watch the replay at the faceoff. Lemieux was not going into that faceoff. Gretzky was circling behind the net before the faceoff. Those two players said, you know, Dale, you take it. But then watch the teammanship of what happened. Lemieux took off. Gretzky took off. It was Dale's role to get that puck up the ice right away. And that's what happened. Nobody sees it because, you know, always it's a goal scorer. Lemieux scores. But Dale was the guy who started that whole thing. But then, I was saying to Kelly, watch the reaction of Dale Howardchuk when that goal is scored. I admire a superstar that shows emotion. That was for Canada. That was for the Winnipeg Jets. That's for Dale and all his dreams. He responded with such enthusiasm. 
but for fun, watch the replay. Why wasn't there a back checker on Lemieux? The Russian player happened to trip over the blue line. Back checking. <laughs> yeah, Dale Howarchuk was in close proximity to said <laughs> defender. I don't know if Dale interfered or not. So there's more to that whole play if you watch it. That's what a superstar does. He's unselfish, but he does little things that nobody notices. The outcome was a win. And he was covering for defenseman Larry Murphy, who was the third guy on the rush. Like he did everything right on that play. It was. Like, if you watch, I'm sure if they watch the tapes after, say, Murph, what the heck are you doing up here? <laughs> you know, you're, you're a defenseman, not a forward. But that's what that Team Canada meant. Those guys gave up their egos and they played as one and for each other. And Dale, as he skated away, I know he hugged Lemieux after. That would happen so fast he wouldn't have a chance to think about it. But I just know the last year or so with his health, He's got such phenomenal memories that none of us have a chance to ever live. He was part of something really big, and he handled it very, very well. If you're a Dale Howardchuck fan, and it's funny that you talk about this, Ted, because it was my kids last night who mentioned this play to me. Oh, yeah, Mom, I was the line with Lemieux and, and Gretzky, and they're 7-9. and nine. And so somewhere along their way, their dad has made it important to say, that's the guy you want to watch, but more importantly, that's the kind of person you want to be. You mentioned an innate hockey skill, but there's more to do than that in terms of how you push through in those clutch moments, and, and it, whether it's confidence or, or what. What would you call it at the, at the end of the day when it came to that? what was inside Howard Chuck? It's another, it's another gear, another gift. I was with the guys in the 71-72 series. The pressure on those guys and how superstars can go to another level. We all think we're spent, but those guys somewhere, it comes out of them. They see the ice different. They, they want to be out there, and Dale had that ingredient. Again, you look at that whole series. You had Lemieux and Gretzky at all the points. The other guys were you know, six or seven points, but they were big parts of the team. But a guy like Dale, I mean, most of us say, don't put us out there. Don't put us out there. <laughs> this is going to be pressure. He wanted to be out there. And he knew what to do. These guys just react. They have another gear, another gift. And they're humble about it. Dale was humble about that. He didn't come out bragging, boy, I set up that goal. No, it's part of the team. That was a great moment. It's just an ingredient that I've tried to look at for years with the Bobby Orr's and the Halls and, and you know, the Bellavos and all these guys and, you know, the Ovechkins. Where do they come from? They're, that's a special ingredient you can't teach. It's born with them. And Dale wanted that challenge. A little guy from Winnipeg, well, oh, Lemieux gets all the, the glory. Ah, it takes a mucker from Winnipeg to set the darn thing up. Ted, I know your son, Chris uh, Jericho, wanted to join us this morning. It's 5 a.m. a.m. in Los Angeles. Hopefully we can catch up with him later on in the day. Ted, thanks for these remembrances, and uh, thanks for being such a big part of the Dale Howarchuk memories because I couldn't get to all the games, but I listened to them all on CJOB, and, and you're a big part of that for me, so thank you. Can I just say one thing? Dale Howarchuk got a lot of people like my son to be able to dream. Well said. Thanks, Ted. Thank you. It is something that I know a lot of people like to do is to stand while they work. Yeah, and many of us have reworked how we work as we 
work from home during COVID-19 and many people have had to continue to go into work and we know that, but many of us have had to be at home. And over the next few hours, we're going to hear from government officials about the restart program, they're calling it, how they're going to get the economy rebounding, how they're going to help people return to work, return to school and all the rest. And so Dr. Brent Rusin is first up at 10 a.m. with different municipal officials. And then he joins the premier again at 10 to talk about this restart program so that we're going to learn more throughout the day about this return to some sort of new normal within COVID-19. But as we get into that, we want to talk about our return to work because I was also in the office for a few days last week, complained by day three that my neck was so sore from just sort of, I didn't know if it was the way I was sitting or the fact, as you mentioned, I wasn't standing as I also have been doing a lot of, or if I'd just already done some sort of damage at home that I wasn't even aware of. And so that's why we want to bring on our next guest. She's an ergonomist and return to work consultant. And her name is Rachel Mitchell. And she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. Uh, I had said to you yesterday that uh, I part of this was self-serving because I have my own complaints about my aches and pains, and we'll get into that in a moment. But first, describe your job. What is it that you do? Because you actually go into many Canadian offices to try to help people have better workspaces. Yeah, so I'm a Canadian certified professional ergonomist, and uh, I work in both office environments and in manufacturing. So my job is really to go in and look at the way people work, whether they're sitting at a desk or whether they're building an aircraft, and look at, you know, what what does that work do to the body? What is the loading being placed on the body? And then how do we redesign work to minimize the stress on people's bodies so that we can get people through their careers with, you know, the least amount of of damage and injury and things like that, and also to, to make people more productive in what they're doing. What's the most common part of the body that, that people... Uh shall we use the word abuse without even really realizing that they're doing it, Rachel? It's, I mean, probably we would say it's the back. Um, You know, 80% of people suffer back pain at some point in time in their lives. And oftentimes we don't do anything to correct bad posture and kind of bad workstation setups until our body yells at us and tells us that we've done something wrong. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes that's a little bit on the late side. So the goal is to try to improve postures even before that discomfort sets in so that we're we're catching it as early as we can. Is that part of the problem then with so many people working from home right now? The, the bad habit is that they might be slouching or not, you know, paying much attention to their space. And so if I return to work, as I mentioned, and have that pain, am I to blame my workspace or have I done something already while at home? H- how do I get ready for this return to work if I'm someone who is at home right now? I think what's really happened is people have all been sent, you know, we're all sent home in March with, you know, very little kind of preparation for it. And people have been making do with really non-traditional, non-ideal workstations. And we made do because we sort of saw this as being temporary. And honestly, people had so much on their plates that it wasn't a priority. And so I think for a lot of people... You know, the discomfort has already set in and whether they're noticing it now or they don't notice it until in your case, like you came back to work and then you notice it. It is a function of what we've done over the last five months. We also have lots of people who, you know, would have been really physically active and are not as physically active now. So there is a loss in muscle endurance and muscle strength that comes from, you know, people who maybe have been more sedentary over the last five months. And so our bodies are just kind of not up for everything that they might have been in condition to do before. So some of it is sort of a a loss of conditioning. Some of it is having done, you know, some things over the last five months at the kitchen table, at the dining room table, on the couch. 
Um, and I think really we're at a point now where people have to stop and recognize that, you know, if they're staying at home, it is no longer temporary. Um, if they're returning to work, you know, they may be returning with some discomfort. And we need to take the time to really make sure that we're setting up, you know, people's workstations correctly, that we're providing people with the education they need to know what to do. I think a lot of people sort of may do because they weren't sure where to get resources or even how to go about setting up their workstations properly. Now, I mentioned that I like to stand. Loren likes to do the same thing. Should I be wearing shoes? Should I be conscientious about what I'm putting on my feet while I'm doing that? I mean, so traditionally, the sort of running joke is when we talk to people about standing at work, we say you should bring in flat shoes and you shouldn't be doing it in your three-inch heels. So there's probably a fair argument to be to be made that if you're doing it at home, you know, wearing a supportive shoe is helpful. Probably the more important thing in terms of standing, though, is making sure that you're standing at a work surface that's sort of the right height for you. So your keyboard should always be at elbow height, whether you're standing or sitting. So if you're really tall and you're using your kitchen counter, you know, you might need to stack a couple of cutting boards and put your laptop on top of that in order to get the the keyboard at the right height. So it's sort of, if you're staying at home, it's a matter of finding the right, you know, the right chair in your house that has the best height for you, finding the right work surface in order to kind of get things positioned at the right place. One of the real challenges is everyone's been working off laptops. And a laptop screen is inherently really low because it's tied to the keyboard. Mm. So your 12 or 14 pound head is bent forward all day long while you're looking down at a screen. And, and, you know, the recommendation from the Canadian Standard Association for laptop use is that they're docked and you have external keyboards and mice so you can get your monitor at the right height. And again, these are just things we haven't done to date. And it's sort of time for people to say to their employer, you know, can I come in and pick up my keyboard and my mouse? You know, what is available? What resources? What education? Do you have a webinar on how to set up my home office that I can use to get this done properly? And Rachel, before we let you go, it's important to point out as much as I know, there's so many damages that can come from those heavy lifting labor type jobs. And I'm thinking of this office episode where the warehouse versus office employees had a debate over whose bodies were hurting more. (laughs) There can be pain from not doing this properly, and it can be long-term. Absolutely. I mean, carpal tunnel syndrome is a very substantial um, injury that can have very long recovery times. You know, your back takes a beating from sitting all day or even standing all day at a workstation. You know, long-term neck issues from working off of laptops. These are real issues. So just because you work in an office, you shouldn't assume that it's not a big deal and you should just live with it. You really need to, you know, get the help you know, from a certified ergonomist to help you set these things up properly. Rachel Mitchell, ergonomist. First time hearing that word in my life today. So thank you. And return to work consultant. We really appreciate your insight on this. One of those shows, very emotional, up and down roller coaster ride for us today. Yeah, and also, you know, really rewarding because we've had so many listeners not just write in about their memories of Howard Chuck, but just their thoughts about cancer or their own personal stories. And so uh, it's a pleasure 
to be doing this job today because I'm learning a lot as we go. We played your powerful tribute to him at 637, and there were a couple details in there I hadn't known about him and his life here in Winnipeg uh, in terms of the time he spent here. And, of course, the rumors about his number being on the bottom of his alleged pool in his home. And I don't think anyone – did anyone ever confirm that along the way or yeah. just one of those legends that gets attached well, to a player? Actually, Kelly Moore played in his sports at 725 from Rick Bonus, a former Jet player and assistant coach. I think he was even the head coach for the Jets for a brief time interim head coach did confirm that he had a Jets logo at the bottom of his pool. So uh, that that uh, legend, that urban myth, that rumor <laughs> turned out to be absolutely it's true. true. That's a, it's a good one. And of course it leads us, uh, Greg, to some really important conversations uh, about the very disease that took his life. I think so. And uh, to the last time we visited with Dale Howarchuk, uh, just after the conclusion of his cancer treatments in April, he was always thinking about other people and giving them advice on how they could could deal with their personal situation a little bit better as we look back on the legacy of Dale Howard Chuck. We also thought it was prudent to look ahead on behalf of the thousands of Canadians, those people Dale was speaking to uh, just a few short months ago who are currently battling the very disease that took his life. And battle was the word that he used repeatedly, Greg, in his interview with us back in April. And of course, we learned earlier this month that the battle continued for Dale Hirechuk and he of course lost his life yesterday at the age of 57 to stomach cancer and so we want to bring on Elizabeth Holmes who's the senior manager of policy and surveillance with the Canadian Cancer Society. Good morning Elizabeth. Good morning. Battle's the correct word for anyone in cancer but there's something particularly brutal about stomach cancer is there not? You know, it's really uh, up to the individual, the, the the word that they choose. But, mm. um, you know, it's great that you're using the language that he used uh, to, to reflect his, his journey with cancer. So can you give us a little bit of an idea of of what happens with regards to, to stomach cancer? I heard Richard Cloutier in a conversation with uh, Dr. Katz say that, and Dr. Katz sort of said, yeah, this is this is one of the real tough ones. Yeah, you know, about um, 4,000 Canadians are expected to be diagnosed with with cancer, uh, stomach cancer in 2020, and about uh, 1,900 will die. Uh, And in Manitoba, this is about 130 new cases and 60 deaths due to stomach cancer this year. So about half the cases uh, won't beat stomach cancer, but then half do. And so there is, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, a glass half full or, or not, Elizabeth, what do we know about recovery and what have we learned over the years about different ways and different research that's gone towards beating back against this disease? Yeah, you know, it's it certainly when you, when you have any cancer, stomach cancer, your healthcare team will will create a treatment plan for you. There's a lot of information that goes into to making those decisions about surgery and chemotherapy or or radiation therapy, and all of these options are, are available for individuals with with stomach cancer. And certainly, with respect to research, uh, a key area is looking at better ways to diagnose and stage the stomach cancer, uh, and then finding ways to predict the probability that the cancer can be successfully treated or whether it will come back after treatment. Elizabeth, uh, Dale told us that that he'd had his stomach effectively removed. What, What does that look like? Uh, yeah, I can't really speak to that as a, as a medical professional and more of a, a, the public health side of things. Um, but that's certainly, uh, you know, one of the options that is available for, for surgery and uh, something that when somebody is diagnosed with stomach cancer, you know, having those conversations with their doctor, with their healthcare team, understanding uh, what that surgery would look like, what their options are, and, uh, and making an informed decision. You use the word 
key in this is, is that diagnosis, Elizabeth, and we're speaking with Elizabeth, who's with the Canadian Cancer Society, and, and what symptoms might we miss along the way, uh, in particular with stomach cancer, that we might pass off as something that we shouldn't and maybe take a little bit more seriously? Yeah, and it's exactly that. Stomach cancer uh, may or may not cause any signs or symptoms at its early stages if the tumor is small. And, you know, our, our abdomens or stomachs, they're, they're meant to expand and contract. And so a tumor can grow without causing any symptoms. And so once those symptoms start to appear, they may seem like another health condition. Um, and so in the end, about half of stomach cancers are diagnosed at a later stage. So some things to keep an eye out are if you have abdominal pain or discomfort, um, weight loss, fatigue, maybe changes in the way you know, you're know you digesting with maybe a loss of appetite, or you're feeling very full after a small meal or unknown reasons for heartburn or nausea. And so again, any other health conditions can also have these same symptoms, but it's important to know what's normal for you so you can notice these changes uh, and always see a doctor if there changes to how you're you're feeling. So it might not be nothing, but it might be something serious. So, Lorraine, I had a sense that you had another thought on this before we let Elizabeth go. Well, just before I let you go, you know, when you go to your doctor, sometimes that's part of the equation, Elizabeth, of what to say and what to be telling them. And so you don't want things to be pushed. You don't want to be pushing them aside, but you don't want your physician to either. So is there an education component that still needs to happen for physicians as well as we as we work to try to get more people diagnosed earlier? You know, you know, certainly, you know, uh, you know, going to your physician armed with those questions. So um, if you have questions about kind of maybe changes that are happening to your body um, or you want to be empowered with what types of questions to ask your doctor, I encourage you to call our Cancer Information Helpline at one 939 And you can talk to one of our cancer information specialists or you can also visit cancer.ca. And we have a live chat option and we also have a section on our website that is kind of uh, those questions to ask at those appointments um, and to, to support you with those conversations. That phone number one more time, Elizabeth? Yeah, it's one 939 3333 or cancer.ca. Elizabeth Holmes, Senior Manager of Policy and Surveillance with the Canadian Cancer Society. We appreciate you taking the time and sharing this information with us. Thanks for having me. Loren, I don't know if you have anyone in your life that you would consider a confidant or a mentor or someone that's helped guide you through your life. Uh, You don't have to disclose who that is right now, but there's something special about having someone outside your family circle that you can trust. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say that that can come in many shapes and forms, right? To Greg, you can meet them through work. They could be someone you went to first for a service and then they turn into a friend, you know, and it can be someone who you've known your whole life and... Greg, I'd like you to bring on our next guest because I know the Dale Howard Chuck story is so important to you, but so is acknowledging uh, the friendships that were made along the way. And I think that's uh, one of the tremendous legacies we're learning that Dale Howard Chuck has left behind. He's had an incredible effect on fans, anyone who met him along the way. And then, of course, there are the people that knew him best. Ted Foreman was Dale Howard Chuck's lifelong friend and financial advisor and a sincere condolences to you, Ted, as we uh, remember Dale today. When did you meet Dale Howarchuk? I met Dale Howarchuk um, at the, the first Memorial Cup that he played in, in Brandon. Uh, they won back-to-back Memorial Cups, and uh, he was the MVP of that Memorial Cup that year. Well, do you remember what year that would have been, or, or how many years 81, ago? 81, I believe. 80 or 81. 
So that's a long time to know someone and to be friends with them. And so many different memories we're hearing over the past few days of Dale Howard. Chuck, what stands out for you about maybe the the first time you met him and then how that relationship evolved into a, a true friendship? Well, the, the the biggest thing about Dale Howardchuk and my relationship with him was can be spelled out in one word: loyalty. Mm-hmm. You know, when Dale Howardchuk was in got drafted by the Winnipeg Jets uh, by John Ferguson, uh, I started to look after his financial affairs almost right from the beginning. I had meetings with his father and his and Dale and his agent, Gus Bedali. And we struck off uh, a very, very wonderful, wonderful and long-time relationship at that point. And uh, it carried on. And, you know, when he got traded to Buffalo, you know, there was a Ted Foreman in Buffalo too, I suppose, but he never left me. And then he went to St. Louis and Philadelphia, and I'm sure there were Ted Foremans in those cities too, but... He just never, ever left me, and he never left Gus Pedali either, his agent. He just, he was such a loyal, loyal person. Ted, I was reminiscing about the day that Dale Howarchuk signed his contract at Portage in Maine. He, he walked out of the back of a Brinks truck and signed his contract with the Jets, his first one very publicly at Portage in Maine in front of fans and, and with John Ferguson, of course, at his side. Give us an idea what it would have been like for an eight, year old to sign a professional contract have the pressure that he had on him to take this team from the bottom of the NHL he, he led them into the playoffs that first year and all the while uh, he's he's trying to grow up he's just a kid well you know he may have been 18 years of age and he may have been a kid but he had such presence about him even at the age of 18 he just it was just sort of, yes, he was very excited and very thrilled about being jet drafted by the Jets. and But, you know, he just took it in stride, He just, uh, which is what he did all the time. He never changed from the very first time I met him. He just, uh, well, well, oh, we'll go ahead and do this. And, yes, that was really nice at Portage and Maine. What a great thrill that was. And, you know, on and on he goes. I mean, he just was that way. It's one thing to be a star. It's another to be a star in a community this size. And it can be a blessing or maybe some might argue it's a curse, depending on where you're coming at it, Ted. And and for Dale, I don't think I've heard one single person who's had a story about encountering him on the street or seeing him at an event or in a store where they haven't just said he was completely nice and genuine. You you really can't fake that. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, what you just said is, is, is exactly the way he was. He just... It, he never turned anything down, at least not that I know of. He was he went to events, he went to hospitals, uh, the whole you know he did everything that a star professional athlete uh, is not required to do, but usually those type of people always step up when things like that have to be done. Ted, I'm thinking about Game Four of the 1990 playoffs. Uh, yeah. Dale would uh, would go on to play only three more games with the Jets after that. But when he scored that goal to tie things up, 
battle back with the Jets, and he jumped up and down on the ice. We'd been used to seeing Dale Howarchuk celebrate his goals, sometimes with just a wave, sometimes with hugs for players, but that was as emotional as I ever saw him, and that had to have a huge impact on his team. And and Ted Irvin said, you know, those guys have another gear with regards to the way they play and their personalities as well. Uh, yes, what Ted said is 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 exactly totally accurate about about Dale. Totally. You know, and I, he, I, I mean, it... he would he would know uh, a lot more about those type of things <laughs> than I do. But uh, Ted Urban and I are very good friends as well. But um, no, it was a. Uh, I've been dealing quite a bit lately with uh, with through either email or telephone with. Dale's wonderful elder son, Eric. But Eric phoned me a week ago on Thursday, and he said, my dad wants to talk to you, and would you call him? And I said, I sure would. So I called Dale, and we had a conversation for about a half an hour, and all I did was listen and he, the reason that he wanted to call me was to thank me for all of the things that I had done for him, for him over the years. And uh, uh, that was a tough day. And then, of course, yesterday morning I learned about his passing. And I went to the golf course yesterday. I should not have because it was on my mind. And I was very, very, very poor yesterday on the golf course. Ted. We can't thank you enough for sharing your stories and your remembrances of, of Dale Howarchuk. And I have zero doubt that part of why Dale loved Winnipeg so much was his connection with you. That loyalty uh, seems to, to run through you both. Thank you for this. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye for now. Ted Foreman. Wow. The, the gift we talked about this at the top of the uh, the top of uh, the show, Greg, about how we know he spoke with different players uh, before his passing. Uh, Gretzky, Solani, and 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 all the people that were on lines with him and and different teams, but then his friendship friends, like his 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 true friends, uh, no matter what professions they were in, to know that he wanted to speak with them to them in his dying moments says a lot about his character. I'd like to think that that was Dale's ultimate gift was that mm-hmm. he got to say goodbye to the people that meant the most to him. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.